part of the reason that I love teaching through a book of the Bible is that it gives us a reason to keep Scripture in context. So often we turn to a certain passage of Scripture in the Bible because we're studying a certain topic. Last week we talked about, uh, was last week lust and adultery? I think it was. Um, see, I don't hold anybody to remembering what I preach because I can't remember what I preach. So you say, well, I want to look up what does the Bible say about lust and adultery. So we, we use your concordances and you find that passage and you take that passage out of the book of Matthew, out of, out of the Sermon on the Mount, out of the book of Matthew, and now we've lost context. And so whenever we go through verse by verse, these two verses that we're going to look at today, not only do they fit into the flow of the Sermon on the Mount, but they also, the Sermon on the Mount is fitting into the flow of the gospel of Matthew. So several people since I started the gospel of Matthew is like, Brent, you preach this great message, but you never got to the cross. I'm like, not for several more chapters, sweetheart. You're going to have to wait until we get to the end because the Sermon on the Mount, the, the whole, the book of Matthew is building our need for Jesus on the cross. So by the time we get to the end, we should all be running towards Jesus. Um, so, I, sorry, that was, just, that was extra. Reflect that in your giving. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is illustrating uh, the Beatitudes that we talked about several weeks, salt and, uh, weeks ago. Salt and light and the shortfall of the Old Testament law. He talks to us about the life that is blessed by God, the life that is filled with the presence of God, the life that transcends the righteousness of the law, <clears throat> is transformed by and characterized by unreasonable grace. Did you catch all that? The life that is blessed by God, the life that is filled by the, with the presence of God, and the life that transcends the righteousness of the law is transformed by unreasonable grace and characterized by unreasonable grace. Previous to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' message was repent, change the way you think. Instead of murder, don't even get angry. And you take the initiative to reconcile with the person who is angry at you. That was the, the Sermon on the Mount message. Instead of murder, don't even get angry. In fact, you initiate reconciliation. Instead of adultery, don't even lust. You take the initiative of controlling your thoughts and surrendering your thoughts to, to God. That gets us to, today, unreasonable grace and adultery. And adultery. All right, this is going to be good. I really like Rachel's pickle joke. That's a big deal. That's pretty funny. <clears throat> All right. Unreasonable grace and adultery. The kingdom of heaven is near. That was what Jesus was teaching. And so what does the life of the king of a kingdom citizen look like? Jesus keeps a very similar format in this passage as he has the previous passages. So I'm going to do the same thing and keep the same format as I have the last couple of Sundays, which means I don't come up with a new point. They just change. Okay. The points change. The titles don't. So number one, Jesus is going to give us the offense. He's going to tell us the old law offense, and then he's going to tell us what is the New Testament, what is the kingdom offense, and then he sets a whole new standard for those who are citizens of the kingdom. And that's typically where it rubs us uh, the wrong direction. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus says, You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. So Jesus is not quoting one of the Ten Commandments this time. He did in the previous two passages. However, he is quoting from the law that Moses gave to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I find it a little bit intriguing if you're in Deuteronomy, if you're familiar with the, the storyline of of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy's kind of way down the storyline. Uh, so I find it intriguing that divorce is addressed so late in the story of Israel. So the law in Exodus, when God originally gives the law to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus, the law, like the Ten Commandments, does not address divorce. 
In fact, the book of Numbers does not address divorce. Leviticus only addresses divorce as it pertains to who Levitical priests were allowed to marry. So it's not until we get into Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses is reminding Israel of the law, because remember they had been out in the wilderness for 40 years, a lot of them had died off, some of them hadn't heard the law given since Exodus. And so they're about to go into the promised land. Moses is reminding Israel of the law that God had given them right before they go into the promised land. And it is finally here that the law addresses divorce. Moses is addressing a specific scenario here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. You may want to write that reference down. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but it's a little bit of a big deal. Instead of reading the whole thing, I'm going to give you the synopsis of the scenario. It is basically, if a man takes a wife and then he finds a reason to not be pleased with her, if he finds a reason, any reason, She doesn't make good matzah. I'm trying to think Jewish for a second. She doesn't make good tortillas. If a man takes a wife, finds a reason to not be pleased with her, gives her papers of divorce, sends her away, and then she marries another man who also divorces her and sends her away, the first husband was forbidden from taking her back as his wife. Did you follow all that? So first man marries her, doesn't like her for whatever. She has a bad hair day. He writes, I don't like you anymore, so go away. She goes away. She marries again. She has another bad hair day. He divorces her. Moses says, you can't take her back. First guy can't take her back. That was the law, okay? When we get to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4, Moses says, this taking this wife back is an abomination before the Lord. This is not a don't do this. No, this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is a very serious issue. The primary offense in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, is that the institution of marriage was being abused. Sex outside of marriage was obviously against the law. We know sex outside of marriage is against the law. So a man would, what the people, the Israelites were doing was, we can't have sex outside of marriage, so let's use the law, the letter of the law. We're not going to accomplish the spirit of the law, but we can take the letter of the law. So a man would marry a woman that he wanted until he didn't want her anymore, and then he would divorce her, and then he would marry another. If a previous wife became available, he'd marry her again. Do you see what's happening? It's a problem. It's not good. It diminishes the covenant of marriage. It diminishes the value of women. You okay? Marriage had become a convenience of preference. I prefer this woman today. I don't prefer her today. I prefer a different woman, so I'll get divorced. I'll marry the woman I prefer Marriage had become a convenience of preference instead of being a commitment. I'm tired of her, I'll divorce her. The next husband says, I'm tired of her, I'll divorce her. And the first husband says, ah, I guess I'll take her back as my wife. Women were being passed around and the covenant of marriage was not being honored. Now, God created the institution of marriage back in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve. This is important to understanding Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 2, I am going to put this on the screen, verse 21. Now, this is right after Adam has been naming all of the animals that God created. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. So we have Adam, remember, God took some dirt, 
And he blew air into it. And he made Adam out of dirt. Eve, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. He takes a rib from Adam. It would be a prime rib, of course. <laughs> and he makes Eve. Verse 23. Adam wakes up. At last, the man exclaimed. He's excited. He's so excited. Do you guys remember the first time you saw your wife before she was your wife? Remember? Remember seeing her? You're like, oh, yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> At last, the man exclaimed, this one, after he's been naming all the animals, and they're all hairy and different and weird, and he wakes up, and at last, this one is bone of my bone, and she is flesh of my flesh. She's like me. She's from me. She will be called, I'm not going to do it, woman. I know y'all are all anticipating me saying, whoa, man. Because she was taken from man. There's this great picture in Adam realizing that this, this person, this being has been taken from him and his, his, it's, it's part of him, and it's like the, he's been taken into two pieces. Verse 24, this explains this whole concept that he just said. She's bone of my bone. She's flesh of my flesh. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. The two are united into one. Now, I don't think that the word intimate fully describes the relationship God has created between a man and a woman. I think wholly intertwined, wholly like W-H-O-L-L-Y, whole. The entirely, wholly intertwined describes the concept of two united as one better than intimate. Um, it's not only about being physically intertwined. Sorry, guys, there's more to it than that. In marriage, we are... I didn't list these in any specific order, and whenever I was reading through this this morning, I thought that is odd that I put financial first, but here's the deal. In marriage, we are financially, mentally emotionally, even spiritually interdependent. You realize that your, sir, you remember your relationship with God directly, let me back up, your relationship with your wife directly affects your relationship with God. You say, oh, it's no big deal that we're having some problems, I'm just going to let it go. No, it's going to affect your relationship with God because you are spiritually, wholly intertwined. So in marriage, we are financially, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually interdependent. In November, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit proud here. Uh, in November, Diane and I will celebrate our 25 years of marriage. So whenever I was younger, people who had been married 25 years, they were old. Now they're magically very young. Not exactly sure how that works. My point of telling you that is that after 25 years, I can come into the house from being here at the church or I had been working out in the, in the yard or whatever. I can come into the house and say, hey, Diane, and she will respond with, I know, or I already did it, or it's already cooking. <laughs> what I really hate is whenever she knows what I'm thinking before I know what I'm thinking. And I'm like, can you just let me have a private thought for one nanosecond? Please get out of my brain. Yeah, because after 25 years, we, we just think the same thoughts. How we view the covenant of marriage is important because God uses the covenant of marriage as an illustration for the relationship between his people, the bride, and himself, the groom, throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. That's the picture. So if we don't understand what God is doing with marriage, then we're going to misunderstand what God is doing with us in salvation. Are you okay? Good. For instance, I really like this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it speaks of the two are united as one. It is the same math as the Trinity 
where our understanding of the Trinity is that three are one. Well, how does that work? Exactly like marriage, where you have two who are one. And all the mathematicians say that doesn't work. Oh, get married. You'll understand it absolutely does work. It helps us to understand the Trinity. It helps us to understand our relationship with God, where two become one. And then in Christian marriage, the idea is that a man and a woman and God become one. It's really pretty awesome, isn't it? That's kingdom math. It doesn't actually work out very well, but I mean, it doesn't work out mathematically, but it works out splendidly well, actually. Two become one. In the Trinity, three are one. The marriage covenant is illustrating our relationship with God. Jesus, back to our text, Jesus begins with this illustration. He begins this illustration with the law of Moses saying, here's what he says, a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. The standard of the law because we live in a different time and different culture, different set of rules. The standard of the law then and there was just give your wife a note. It's like giving her a hall pass. She gets a marriage pass. You just write on a piece of paper, hey, this woman is not my wife any longer. And then you can send her away. And that was a divorce. And then... In the same grammatical structure as the two previous illustrations that we talked about with lust and whatever the other one was, Jesus raises the standard. So he says, here's the Old Testament standard, and then he says, but I say, right? Every time. That's that's the template that Jesus is using. So the Old Testament standard is, write her a note, send her away, she's a bad cook, let it go. It really was that frivolous. Then we get to verse 32, where Jesus says, But I say, here's the contrast, that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, Bible scholars have debated this verse a lot. There are big name scholars on multiple sides of this this debate of this verse. There's not real consensus, so I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and I'm going to tell you my heart in it, okay? I'm going to teach this to the very best of my understanding of the text, I'm not going to teach someone else's convictions. I'm not going to teach someone else's feelings. My job is to teach the scripture as best as I can. Okay? So please understand, I am not out to condemn anyone, and I don't want to offend anyone. My obligation is to teach the text to the very best of my understanding. I wrote this out so that I would say everything that I want to say. I want to lead you, this is my pastor's heart, is to lead you toward a redeemed and gloriously God-filled and God-blessed life. That is my desire. I'm not out to make anybody cry, okay? I am 100% convinced that Scripture teaches us how to live a redeemed and glorious, God-filled and God-blessed life. So... Please trust that my conviction is to teach you God's word for your spiritual growth. I want you to know how to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Okay? I feel the skepticism. I want you to know how to be a fully devoted follower of Christ from Scripture. So as you follow Christ, you will live a blessed and glorious life. I believe that with all my heart. In fact, I've, I've bet my entire career on that statement. 
So put your thinking cap on. We're going to do some work here, okay, in verse 32. He says, Jesus says, but I say, Jesus creates the contrast just as he is, has in previous illustration. But I say, you have the Old Testament, now you have, or the Old Testament law, now Jesus is going to change the standard. He says, but I say that a man who divorces his wife, and then you have this phrase between the commas there, unless she has been unfaithful. Jesus is creating one acceptable reason for a divorce. Pause your brain for half a second. Some of you are already thinking, well, there's other exceptions in other parts of Scripture. I'm not teaching all the other parts of Scripture. I'm only teaching Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 right now. So, if you want me to do a comprehensive thing on, on the entire Bible teaching of divorce and marriage and remarriage and divorce and remarriage and remarriage and all of the nuances, then we'll set aside Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and we'll do that. But for this morning, I'm just going to teach Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. You okay? There's a lot of things I'm going to miss. Jesus is creating, in this verse, he is creating one acceptable reason for divorce. <clears throat> if we remove this phrase, unless she has been unfaithful, we are left with an absolute statement with no exceptions. So sometimes remo removing what's between the commas helps us understand the overarching thought, and then we see the exception, okay? So he would say, but I say, I'm going to remove that phrase, okay? But I say that a man who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Uh, that is a pretty serious uh, uh, that's a very serious consequence compared to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In Deuteronomy, remember, it's like, I divorced her, now I'm going to get married to somebody else, and then we'll just kind of shuffle around. It's no big deal. And then Jesus comes along, he says, no, 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 no. I say that if a man divorces his wife, he causes her to commit adultery. That statement is built upon what I taught last week. So if you missed last week, you got to go back and listen to the sermon because now you've lost context. God's not pleased with adultery. This is the problem. He says, hey, dude, he's speaking to the husband, the man of the home. He says, listen, if you divorce your wife, it's not of no consequence. It is of great consequence. You cause her to commit adultery. So he's given, he adds that, that exception. <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not ready for that yet. The contrast is the Old Testament required no reason for divorce. I think if you grew up in church, you find that pretty shocking because we always thought that you had to have a real reason for divorce. In the Old Testament, there was no reason for divorce. Jesus comes along. He just quotes the law from Deuteronomy. He says a man can divorce his wife merely by giving her a written notice of divorce. That was it. If a man decided that his wife did not please him for whatever reason, he simply wrote her a pass and sent her away. That was the standard. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the contrast is Jesus forbids divorce except for one reason. <clears throat> Jesus gives us one scenario that divorce is permitted. And I intentionally say permitted. It's not commanded. If we look at the whole of Scripture, we'll find where, where adultery happens and grace takes precedence over judgment. So Jesus gives us one scenario that divorce is permitted, not commanded, if the wife has committed a sexual sin of some sort. Now, this is where we start to get really nerdy, okay? So stick with me for a second because this is important to understanding verse 32. The Greek word here for unfaithful is a word, is Greek word pornea. 
pornea. It's a broad term for sexual immorality. Uh, if you grew up with the King James Version, or if you use the King James Version now, uh, it translates the word fornication. So fornication was broad uh, premarital sexual immorality as opposed to adultery, which was uh, sin within marriage of some sort. Talked about that last week, not going to go back there. Pornea is a broad sexual immorality with the exception of adultery. And here's why I say that there is an exception is because in Hebrew, the Old Testament original language, and in Greek, and Aramaic, the New Testament original languages, Greek and Hebrew both have separate words exclusively indicating the immoral act of sex of a married person. So adultery has its word. We have sexual immorality, pornea, or fornication, sex outside of marriage, immoral sex outside of marriage. And then you have a whole different, uh, you have other words in Hebrew and Greek that are indicating sexual immorality in the context of marriage. Are you with me? This is important. So it appears when Jesus says here, except for she has been unfaithful, pornea, generally um, a general word for sexual immorality outside of marriage, it appears this exception for divorce has to do with a man, a husband, discovering that his spouse, his wife, was sexually immoral before entering into this present marriage. Because if it was during marriage, that would be adultery. And Jesus would use the word for adultery. Like the way you're thinking. I'm just glad you're thinking. Some of you, I can tell you're not thinking. <laughs> Jesus says, except for pornea, except for her sexual immorality before you got married, this person's premarital sexual sin is a permissible reason for a present divorce. I'm going slow because I need you to absorb do, 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 do. I like the awkwardness. I told somebody earlier, I'm going to preach on adultery. So we'll know after this Sunday if we're going back to one service or going to three services. <clears throat> I want to pause here on this. It's a little bit of a side note to the text, but it's very important. Speaking of pornea and how pornea, sexual immorality before marriage, it does affect morality in marriage. It makes no difference how normal our society has made premarital sex. The Bible is abundantly clear. Last week I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. He says, don't fool yourself. Those who indulge in sexual sin do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We've made it where it's no big deal. Oh, no, no, no. It is a huge deal. Modern Christianity has compromised. We don't speak about marriage, we don't speak about divorce, and we don't want to speak about sex. And so consequently, the world is teaching our kids about more marriage, divorce, and about sex. We had a marriage class once upon a time. A guy came to me after class. He said, I don't think we should talk about sex at church. And I'm like, where else would we talk about sex? Are you going to talk about sex to your buddies at work who are into pornography and weird things? Well, no. Like, where are you going to get a morality of sex if we don't talk about it at church, buddy? Sorry, that was not in my notes. That was me venting. Uh, you can take some back from your offering. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes the way people think are like, you, dude, we do life by scripture. I don't know. Anyways. So, to those who are not married now, you need to know that your purity now will affect your marriage if one day you decide to get married. It affects both men and women, and it affects both positively and negatively depending on, on sexual immorality. 
Okay? Put that out there. We're not changing. Ah, keep going, Brent. Now, I've spent too much time on the reason for divorce. We need to keep in mind as we go forward uh, in, in verse 32, keep in mind uh, where Jesus began in Deuteronomy 24, this whole idea of passing around wives on a whim, where there was no, uh, the marriage covenant was not kept, their vows were not kept. So Jesus, he, he is going to set a new standard, the standard of the kingdom of heaven. So the Old Testament says this, this is what he's done for three times now, the Old Testament says do this, I'm saying do this, and the, the point of it is run from all sinfulness, stay away from, don't even come close to committing sin. So here's what he says, he says, but I say, a man that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. These words are not difficult to understand. They are difficult to accept because they push up against my will. See, God wants glorious for you, and you want what you think is good for you. So whenever God says, it's whenever your parents say, don't eat a bunch of candy right before lunchtime. And we say, no, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then you're vomiting. Well, you're stupid. God gives us a standard, and we say, that's not what I want. And God says, I don't want good for you. I want glorious for you. The words are not difficult to understand. They're difficult to accept. The, verse 32 is parallel, is the is same template as the previous two illustrations, which we're pretty all right with. He says, similar to hate being equated to murder. That was the first one. Lust being equated to adultery last week, and now divorce is being equated to adultery. And even marrying someone who is divorced is equated to adultery. That's the template. Hate, you've heard the Old Testament say don't hate, I say don't murder. You've heard the Old Testament say don't, don't commit adultery, I say don't even lust. I think I turned that first one around, didn't I? And now the Old Testament says, oh, get a casual divorce. It's no big deal. And Jesus says, no, it is adultery. It is a big deal. And marrying someone who has been divorced is a big deal. Now keep in mind the principle here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not, he's not raising the lowest possible standard to get into heaven. That was the, the perception of the, of the Pharisees and the, and the New Testament Christians to some degree, where we have the Old Testament law. And if we could just keep the Old Testament law, just keep it good enough, then we can get into the kingdom of heaven. And that's not true. Jesus comes along and he raises the standard even higher. It's not the lowest standard that Jesus is working toward. The standard is for you and I to be completely hopeless. Oh, Brit, that's a real great sermon. Because we're headed to the end of the gospel. The good news is that at the end, I'm so far off my notes, Jesus is going to die because you're a sinner. Hallelujah. But if he doesn't show us that we're sinners and that we fall short of the law, which falls short of the righteousness of God, which falls short of the glory of God, then he never gets us as a sinner and we never need the cross. And so we stop reading at the end of the Sermon on the Mount because we're like, I can't do this and I don't want to do it. I'll just do my own thing. Jesus wants to paint you into a corner so that you know that you desperately need God. That's good. Thank you. Larry, we get it. I'm going to give again in the offering. I like my preaching so well. <laughs> you must keep in mind, uh, Jesus. He is saying, 
Jesus begins in Matthew. Remember, we're, we're not looking at just this passage, these two verses. We're not looking at just Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the book of Matthew. Matthew begins with Jesus' message. Repent. Change the way you're thinking. Stop thinking that you're going to do marriage well enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. You won't. You can't. Stop thinking the way you're thinking about you're going to make yourself good enough. Instead, he says, honor one another in marriage. It's the Hebrew verse that I, the book from, he, the verse from Hebrews that I used last week. Honor one another in marriage. Remain faithful in marriage. Offer lots of unreasonable grace in marriage. Don't be looking for a reason to get out of marriage. Because that was the Old Testament standard. The Old Testament standard was, oh, I'll just be looking around. If I find somebody I like, I'll get rid of this one. I'm going to get a new one. Don't be looking around. Don't looking for a reason to get out of marriage and marry someone else. That shouldn't be anywhere close to your thinking. What should be close to your thinking is the standard of the kingdom of heaven is oneness, purity, the picture of being of holiness, of holy, being set apart for a specific purpose, where God says, be holy as I am holy, and how that applies to marriage. Do you understand when you get married, you are saying to your spouse, I am setting myself aside from all other people to be yours. Holy, just yours. There's one use for Brent, and only Diane knows it. She tells me every once in a while. But that's a two-way street, right? She sets herself aside for me. Oh, I love that. I love that. Jesus says, or God says, be holy as I am holy. It's always been that way. It's uh, all the way back to God giving the law in Leviticus. The, the reason for, for giving the law was that you can be holy as he, as he is holy. I harp on it often, but God did not give us the law to make us happy. He gives us the law to make us holy, to set us apart. For what? For use in the kingdom of heaven. Well, I thought he set us apart to give us whatever we want. No, 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 no. He doesn't want good for you. He wants glorious for you. That's a good sermon. I'm going to preach that. God does not want to make you happy. He wants to make you holy. Humanity has failed to keep the law. We proved our complete inability to use the instruction of God to arrive at his holiness. So now... Because of the inadequacy of the law and the failure of, of sin-filled you and I, we need desperately God's unreasonable grace. Number two, living by grace. Because there's always a grace factor in these. Living by God's grace is a kingdom of heaven principle. God's grace changes the way we think. That's repentance. We change the way we think. I'm not dependent upon my own abilities anymore. I'm dependent upon Jesus' ability to wash my sins away. It changes our priorities. It changes who we depend on. Instead of depending on ourselves, we depend on God. It changes our end game. Let me explain what I mean by reading a long passage of Scripture. I know you love it whenever I do this, uh, but I figure I can make the point or I can just read the point that's in Scripture, and then if you don't like the point, that's between you and God. Um, you may have a chance or not to take it up with Him. <laughs> Some of y'all are slow on the uptake there. What does he mean we may not have a chance to take it up with God? <laughs> Ask your neighbor after service. <laughs> I'm not going to explain it to you. All right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, interesting chapter. I think it's an odd chapter in some ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is addressing uh, a lot more details about marriage and divorce. I'm not going to go into all of those details. Like I said, that's like a weekend seminar on that. So, so uh, actually, whenever we get to Matthew chapter 19, we're going to cover this topic again. And I may 
expound more broadly. So today it's like introduce the idea because that's what's in the text. Uh, Matthew 19, maybe we'll expound a little more. I don't know, we'll see. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24 is what I'm going to read. I may pause a little bit. We're doing okay. Sometimes people don't know. I shoot for 10-15. That's the objective, 15 after. So if you're wondering if I preached over, no, I didn't preach over. You just thought that you got out earlier, and you don't. <clears throat> I don't. Clarity, good communication. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 says, Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you. And remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rules, my rule for all the churches. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation, speaking of a marriage situation or not. Whatever situation you're in, you should remain. Verse 18, for instance, a man who who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) <laughs> Makes really good sense. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man was circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commands. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. No matter where you are now, don't let the past mess you up. You are forgiven. But move forward in obedience. Okay? Well, Brent, I've made a mess of marriage in the past. That's fine. Look forward and move forward in obedience to the scriptures. Don't carry that guilt into the second part of your life. It means nothing. Verse 20. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. He doubled down on it. And he says... Are you, are you a slave? So the first illustration was circumcision. Do we undo circumcision one way or the other? No. Are you a slave? Second illustration. Don't let that worry you. What? We're Americans. If I'm a slave and I come to Jesus, I should be free. Do you see how we have, we have politic, politics, we have culture, we have how we're socialized, all of these things that shape what we should or should not have as believers. And sweetheart, you need to be doing soap so that you know what the kingdom of God says about your living a life in the kingdom of God. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. It's no big deal. No big deal. Solomon would say, life is but a vapor. Don't worry about it. But if you get a chance to be free, by all means, take it. Because it doesn't mean anything. Because being a slave or not being a slave has nothing to do with your relationship with God. It has nothing to do with your relationship with God. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave to Christ. See how he muddled it all up? We want to draw black and white lines. I'm a slave to no man. Well, Romans says you're a slave regardless. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you're now a slave to Christ. I got lost. Verse 23, God paid a high price for you. So did you catch that? I know we're not at the end of Matthew yet, but we're going to get there in probably a year or so. I don't know. Depends. Jesus may come back and we'll never get there. Hallelujah. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved by this world. The the big idea is don't be enslaved by the standards and desires of this world. God bought you. That's a bigger issue. Verse 24, each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. Third time he says that. What, wherever God has you in life now. Wherever God has you in life now. I heard one speaker say we get destination disease. Whenever I get there, then I'll serve God. No, you won't. No, you won't. Wherever you are at now, whatever lot in life God has given you today, live that for the glory of God. 
Wherever God has you in life now in regards to marriage, or as Paul puts it, slavery. I'm kidding. <laughs> Circumcision. <laughs> he says, I had to put a joke in there somewhere because this is way too serious. He says, remain as you were when God called you. But Brent, I want to be married. Listen, I'm going to hit and run here because it's really... 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Go later in the afternoon, read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But Brent, I want to be married. Our culture, even to a large degree, modern church culture, even our desert heights, has a way of making unmarried people seem second class. Don't everybody say amen at once. The norm is be married and have lots of fat babies. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul admonishes the church to stay single. He actually says single is better. The only reason to get married is because you have a lust problem. So you need to get married. Oops. Single is Paul's first choice. Ah, isn't that opposite of what, where we're at in the church world today? So first, I want to say from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you do not have to be married. That's not a biblical standard. You don't have to be married. Second, I want to say we are all living by God's grace. So there is no condemnation for where you are are because it's easy to come into church and say well i'm not single i'm not married i am single so you know i'm can't go to the marriage class sure you can we don't care <laughs> we come and we're like well i'm divorced and so i'm a second rate uh christian no you're not dude let the person with no sin cast the first stone There's no condemnation. We are all living by God's unreasonable grace. We are here by God's unreasonable grace, and we should extend that unreasonable grace to fellow sinners. Well, that's good. That's good. I should have wrote that in my notes so I remember it second service because they really need to hear that. <clears throat> we are all being redeemed from sin and being pulled out of the darkness. Number three, third thing. I want you to think with me and then I'm going to, I really am going to quit in the next four pages. Uh, because I think that this is a very real scenario and this is why I get really passionate about teaching about marriage and divorce and marriage and remarriage or divorce and remarriage because we need to be thinking about the next generation. When it comes to marriage, it is very uh, introspective of what we want and how it's going to work and how we how life is going to look in our dreams and all that stuff uh, but we need to be thinking about how we will teach our children about marriage and about divorce because the, the scriptures teach about marriage and divorce so we should be teaching our children okay so hold tight with me i'm going to ask you some questions i may not answer them for you i want you to answer them so what will you teach your children about marriage and divorce is it important that they know the standard from Deuteronomy? Say, hey, the Old Testament standard, like the Ten Commandments, the Eleventh Commandment was just don't remarry the woman that you divorced that remarried somebody else. Is that important? You don't have to answer out loud. In fact, please don't. Because if you give the wrong answer, then I have to call you out and start my whole sermon over. Is it important that your children know that Jesus gave one reason for divorce? Because we're back to that mentality of, here is marriage, sweetheart. If your spouse ever does this, leave their sorry keister. That is not the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount at all. In fact, it's the opposite. Or, I said I wasn't going to answer these questions for you. Or, is it important that your children know that marriage is a covenant of unreasonable grace. But dad, what if they do this? You love them anyway. Why? Because Jesus first loved you. Well, what if they do a really big, bad sin? You love them anyway because Jesus first loved you. There is no such thing as a perfect spouse. Don't look around right now. Eyes forward. Don't do it. 
There is no such thing as a perfect spouse except for Diane. I have to cover my bases. I don't want to offend any of you, but I really don't want to offend Diane, okay? So there's, we, we come into marriage idealistically thinking that this person's going to be perfect. And the fact of the matter is, is that marriage is God's way. Let me back up. There's no such thing as perfect, perfect, perfect spouse, just people that the Lord is still working his glory in. He's working on us all. Theme song, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Okay? I'm not there yet, neither is my spouse, but we're working together to get there. Marriage is God's way of giving us a laboratory for putting into practice the unreasonable grace that he's already applied to your life. Marriage is not a place to appeal to fairness, because if you appeal to fairness, your marriage will end. Marriage is a place for you to die to yourself. Marriage is a place for you to consider your spouse over yourself. Marriage is a place for you to trust God with all your spiritual growth as well as the spiritual growth of your spouse. That's a lot to trust God for, right? Because sometimes we come to God and we say, well, God, are you going to fix that in my spouse? And God says, Actually, it's in you that I've been working. <laughs> You're the problem. Ah! I'm going to find a different church. No. Instead of, I'm closing, I really am. Instead of teaching our children a way out of marriage, we need to teach them that it is only by God's grace that we stay in marriage or stay out of marriage. I'm aware that I did not cover every aspect of this topic. I encourage you. I really do. Sincerely, I say this. I really do. I, I encourage you that if you have questions, uh, if you want uh, input on a specific situation, uh, if you have thoughts, um, email me. This is real difficult. It's Brent, B-R-E-N-T, at DesertHeightsChurch.com. And the reason that I say email me is because if you will think through a good question, I will think through a good answer. If you catch me in the breezeway afterwards and you drop a bomb on me of this big chaotic thing that you have going on in your life, then I'm going to be like, oh, brother, I'm going to pray for you. See you later. Okay? <laughs> if you want a real answer, email me.